Well, well, we're in a new series today, Bible Stories, Fact or Fiction, and uh, this is a series that's uh, near and dear to my heart. If you are new, it's one we've done every year since 2019, so what is this, uh, 1924th year, right? Uh, is that right? Yes, can't think, can't do math, but... Uh, Fourth year to do that, and I always like to start by telling uh, the story of where this really came to be. In 2019, I had lunch with James and another friend. James is playing golf this morning. He's in some tournament, man, so he's not here. But uh, James, if you're if you're watching, um, 2019, I had a lunch uh, with James and another friend, and his friend was telling me how he had switched from a Baptist church over to an Episcopal church. He was talking all about, man, I loved how we get together in circles and we just, we just go after the Word of God. We talk about the Word of God. We, we, we drill down, open dialogue about Scripture. He says, we're right in the middle of a series where we're studying Genesis. And as he's talking about Genesis, he says, well, and, and as we're getting into Hebrew, and of course none of that stuff really happened. It's just poetry. And I'm like, well, what would you say? He says, well, yeah, that, none of that stuff. Oh, that Noah's Ark, that's crazy, you know. That, that, that didn't have happened, and I, and I was like, wait, wait a minute, How, how's that possible? Um, he goes, well, Adam and Eve are just a picture of humanity. And I said, well, where does sin, where does death come from? Where does all that come from? Well, it's just kind of always been here. You know? And I was like, okay. Well, I didn't have a huge debate with him because, honestly, at that point, I just didn't know a lot. Um, uh, I wasn't prepared. I believed in the genesis of count for sure, but... Um, I was also really open to multiple ways to interpret and explain Genesis because I, you know, that's just what I've been taught and grown up. And so uh, I believed, you know, that millions of years God had, you know, maybe the gap theory. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know. I was open to any anything. And so fast forward a few weeks later after that encounter, I'm laying in bed sick. And uh, I don't think it was COVID, 2019, you know, everybody used to say, I think I had it in 2019, you know, that was the thing. <laughs> I had, it, you know, 2018, it was just, you know, I don't know, I was sick, but uh, I was laying on the couch and I was thinking, I, I, I'm sick and kind of dozing in and out of, of uh, consciousness and, and uh, I was thinking, you know, I could just watch something on Netflix or I could learn something. Maybe I should just learn something uh, while I'm sitting here. And so uh, I remembered a ministry that I had been introduced to just recently before that called Answers in Genesis. I received a book in the mail from Ken, Ken Ham's, the founder of Answers in Genesis. Anybody been to the Ark Encounter? Yeah. Well, I know. Well, he took 50 people, so at one point. So um, the book was called The Gospel Reset. And in the book, he explained that we're ministering now to a post-Christian world that, that when Billy Graham stood up 40 years ago and said, you know, repent for your sins, that people had a, a, a general understanding of what sin was, of what, what the Bible was. And he says, people are not familiar with the Bible. Now when you get up and say, turn, for Jesus, turn to Jesus and, and repent of your sin, they go, who are you to tell me that I'm sinful? Your truth is different than my truth. And he said, so he began to talk about it. He says, we got to go back to the beginning and begin to open people's understanding to creation to be able to understand the gospel. And so anyway, I, I, I'm thinking about that book. And, I, and I, so I turned over to their YouTube page and I started 
just listening, and I'm laying there, and I fall asleep. And wake up, and this, I did this all day long. I'm just like, oh, what's that? And so I'm learning things about dinosaurs and about carbon dating and about cavemen and about evolution, and I'm laying there stunned, going, what? Nobody ever told me any of this. I was shocked by the scientific discoveries that showed the Bible was true. And, and it really, at that point, I, I was really trying to figure out, like, this world that I had believed my whole life was, was kind of crumbling, you know, my thought process. And I understood, I didn't really truly believe God's word every part. I mean, I was borrowing some humanistic mindsets from things that I had been taught growing up in school. I believed in the Bible, but I also believe it was open to interpretation and also for scientific method has proven some pieces, so maybe we just have to figure out how to harmonize the two. Um, But really, the reality is the things that the big bang, bang, how things came, it's not really a provable science. A, A provable science can be observed, tested, proven, and repeated. This was theories based upon what they were looking at in the present to to assume what what was happening in the past. Of course, I I believed in Adam and Eve and the flood, but I was open interpretation to that. I believed in universe a million years. I believed in prehistoric cavemen (laughs) that didn't have a soul, that there were people before us. I believed in multiple layers of fossils that were laid down over billions and millions of years, and somehow God used all that. For his purpose, his process. I believed dinosaurs roamed the earth 65 million years ago. That's what we were told, right? And some of you are going, oh, where's he going with this? That's, that's true, Jeff. They've proven that. Go to the Perot Museum. They've proven that. Well, they haven't, actually. It's a theory. Um, so it's okay if you believe some of those things. And I'm not here to prove a theory. I'm here... To make you believe and put your faith in God's word. Total. Um, I'm trying to talk to followers of Christ and say, can we elevate this word here higher than any other thing? And that we don't, we, we take this first and fit science with this. We don't take science and try to fit this underneath that. And that's, that's the goal here. Um, how many know... It's not so easy to follow the science today. <laughs> I mean, we hear follow the science. Follow, no, you know, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Don't do this. Do that. Don't do this. Like, well, I'm just following the science. Which science are you following? Well, I'm following this one. Well, I'm following this science. It's not so easy. So when I was growing up in, in school, how many was taught the Big Bang Theory? Well, now they're saying that's all debunked. That didn't work. If we're following the science we got to constantly change what we believe because science is constantly changing what they believe. So, it's not that I didn't believe the Bible. I don't want you to say that. I was, I was the pastor then. <laughs> I hope I believe the Bible. Um, it's that my, some of my ideas were mixed with secular humanistic ideas, and I didn't even know it was really um, making my faith weakened. Because I didn't believe the, the full word of God. And, and so that season in my life, I, 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 I say it was like a second salvation. I mean, I was already saved, but it was like a deepening of my heart into the word of God like I had never, ever experienced before. It changed 
how I saw everything in God's word, not just the creation account. And so it came alive as I was, I was discovering, I mean, one thing after another going, oh my goodness, what? They found more water underneath the earth's crust than is in all of the oceans in the world? What? Because that's one of the things. How, where did they get all that water? Well, they found out actually there's more water underneath the earth's crust than actually in the ocean beds. And what's the Bible say? Out of the deep, the water bursts forth. Of course, they'll never give God's word credit where credit's due, but um, it changed everything. And it's kind of like going on a trip to Israel. When you go to Israel, you're going to see things and you're going to go, oh my goodness, this is real. What I've been reading my entire life now becomes real to me. And that's what I hope that this series does for you. And it, it, it really helped. Hope over the next four weeks is three, three things I want to, my goal is for the next four weeks. Number one, I want to deepen your faith in God's word more than you ever had before. I'm not trying to convince you of a theory. I want to deepen your faith in God's word. Number two, those who are struggling in their faith, I want to affirm that God's word is true and accurate and you can be trusted. And number three, we want to be able to help you give a defense of God's word. Um, First Peter says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, the word defense is the word apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics. And the word apology actually used to mean a defense. It didn't mean I'm sorry. It actually meant I want to give a defense. And so it's interesting. You look at Peter. The fisherman is telling us you need to be able to get a, a defense for your faith. Now think about a fisherman. This is not coming from a scholar this is not coming from an academic. This is a fisherman saying, hey, you need to be able to give a defense for your faith. Everyone in this room should be able to, de to defend their faith. Every one of us, not just the pastor, every single one of you needs to be able to defend your faith. Now, may, you may not be able to go against some philosoph philosopher or some scientist who's going to tell you all this. I, but you know what? The reality is most people are pretty ignorant, aren't they? They are just spouting whatever they've heard. And when you actually come in with logical thinking and facts and say, well, let me just kind of burst your bubble here. Here's the truth. You can break open their hearts to receive. So our responsibility as Christians is to be able to give a defense. So that means we should have a basic understanding of biology, philosophy, geology, logic. We got to know what we believe. We got to help our kids know what they believe and why they it's okay to believe it and we got to be able to help others walk this out and be able to to turn to Jesus. So, uh let me just say this before I get into this, there's no slam dunk for anything. Okay? Evolutionists can't prove their theories. All they can do is point to things and say, "Yeah, well that looks like that." And biblical creationists or or the literal view we can't prove everything. All we can do is point to stuff and say, well, that looks like exactly what the account is. Let me just, what it what's all comes down to, what's the word? Everybody want to say? Faith. Faith. Faith that what God says happened and how he said it happened really happened, and that's truth and fact. So, but I want to add, the Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not blind faith. There are other places, there's other 
Religions like Mormon, where Joseph Smith found some glasses and he went and found something digging underneath and he found these things that only he could read with these glasses. And that Jesus came over and ministered to the American Indians and all that kind of stuff. That cannot be proven. So that's, that's, that's pretty much blind faith. But the faith that we're standing on is not blind faith. It can be proven. The Word of God has never been disproven. Never been disproven. Now, are there things that require a leap of faith? Sure, but it's never been disproven. So it's not blind faith. So before we get into evidences, which we're going to do, next week I'm going to give you 10 evidences, evidences for the creation, and the next week I'm going to give you 10 evidences for the global flood, and then we'll have Eric over in the last week. Uh, before I want to get into that, though, we have to understand why in the world does this matter. Jeff, this isn't a salvation issue. Why are we talking about it? You're going to have all kinds of stuff, different people from all different backgrounds. Why, why are you want to start bringing all this up in there? Do I have to believe in a six-day creation, literal days of creation, a global flood, a real Adam and Eve, a snake in the garden to be saved? Let me just say this. No, you don't. Okay, You don't have to believe those things to be saved. You can have eternal life and believe that Genesis is poetry. You can believe in evolution, and God used evolution somehow. You can believe all that and have a faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible is clear. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you will be saved. But here's the point. The gospel doesn't really make sense if you don't take a literal view of Genesis. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And we'll get into that here in a second. So you don't have to believe those things to be saved, but I will say it's clear it is keeping many from coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Keeping many from coming to the knowledge of Christ, especially young people. So one of the books that uh, I share every year is uh, Ken Ham's book, Already Gone. And uh, this, this book is really fascinating. It's, it's a b- bunch of studies that they fa- found about teenagers and millennials, Gen Z. They studied 20,000 millennials that had left the church and tried to find out what's going on, what's happening, if they grew up in church, all that kind of stuff. And here's what they said. Most people assume that students are lost in college. We've always been trying to prepare our kids for college, and I still think that's a critical thing to do, of course. But it turns out that only 11% of those who have left the church were still attending during the college church, college years. So only 11% of people who, when they, kids, when they leave the church and they go into college, end up still going to church. That's a little scary. Almost 90% of them were lost in middle school and in high school. By the time they got to college, they were already gone. About 40% are leaving the church during elementary and middle school years. Most people assume that the elementary and middle school is a fairly neutral environment where children's toe, children toe the line and follow in the footsteps of their parents spiritually. That's not so. I believe that over half of these kids were lost before we got them into high school. Whatever diseases are fueling the epidemic of losing our young people, they are infecting our students much, much earlier than most assumed. Now, when they're saying lost or they've left the church, obviously they're still in church. But what's happening is they're having the doubts and they're saying, you know what, parents, I don't really believe what you're saying. I don't really believe what you're saying. And so as soon as they get the freedom to step out from underneath their parents' covering, they say, I don't want anything to do with that. When they drill down on the doubts, 
that these students were experiencing in middle school. It says that 40% first had their doubts in middle school. 40% of kids in middle school are already doubting whether God is real and this whole Bible thing and Christianity is real. 43% in high school. Only 11% had their first doubts in college. And you know what they drilled down and they found out what were the main things that were, they, that were just keeping them from coming to Christ or really following in their faith. And here's what it was. All had to do with creation, Adam and Eve, a snake in the garden, a global flood, and a tower of Babel. That stuff is impossible. It's been disproven. So if that stuff can be disproven, then why in the world would I follow the rest of it? He goes on to say, I don't have this quote up there, but what happened in Europe is happening on this side of the Atlantic today. If you go to Europe, it is a place that is way post-Christian. They are turning multiple churches into nightclubs. Beautiful churches now becoming nightclubs. Our spirituality has become compartmentalized. Listen to this. This is so true. Yes, we go to church, but only to get our emotional and spiritual needs met. Then we walk out the doors and we face a pagan world where we have to live by a whole different set of assumptions. We might say this doesn't matter, but let's be honest. In the back of everyone's mind is the question, if I can't trust the Bible in earthly things, why should I trust it in spiritual things? What really happened to the church in the United Kingdom and Europe and America, in fact, across the Western world, was that the church basically disconnected the Bible from the real world. Churches today in America are not a place where one talks about geology or dinosaurs or fossils or the age of the earth. That is left up to the schools and the colleges. Effectively, the church basically hands over the history of the universe to the secular educational institutes and concentrates on the spiritual and moral aspects of Christianity. The church actually disconnects the Bible from the real world. The children in the churches are really taught that in church, one doesn't deal with these things, geology and biology and so forth. That's for school. That's not for church. In church, we talk about Jesus. We deal with doctrines, and we study more on spiritual matters. But anything pertaining to understanding geology and biology, that's all left for the school. There, by and large, they are taught a biological, anthropological, geological, and astronomical, man, that's a mouthful, history of the universe that totally contradicts the Bible's account of creation, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Yes, this epidemic has spread to our shores. Our current generation of children is leaving the churches in droves. We are less than one generation away from being a nation of hollow, empty churches. It's more than possible that we will be the few remnant gray-haired believers who sit in nearly vacant pews on Sunday. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we treating the stories of the Bible like Santa Claus? Let me show that picture of, of the Noah's Ark. I mean, is that how we're treating these stories? We go along with everybody. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah, like we go along with Santa Claus. Oh, Santa Claus is coming this year for you. You better not get a coal in your stocking. Hope there's no kids in here. I'm not going to say anything about whether he's real or not. But the point is, 
Do we treat him like that, but in the back of our minds, these stories, the back of our minds say, yeah, I don't know if that's really possible. And the church has had historically no answers for this. Anybody ever asked, their kids ask, where, did, where does dinosaurs fit in the Bible? Anybody ever had that question asked? Like, where, where did that happen? How's that possible? About cavemen or the age of the earth, you know what, son? Just go have more faith. <laughs> Just have more faith. God's no, no. A Barna study looked at half of teens as well as millennials say, "I need factual evidence to support my beliefs." Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So let me ask you, if you don't believe the word of God, how can you have faith? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, James tells us. So if you, let's take it outside of creation. If you believe and you're told that God no longer speaks, which some leaders do, will you ask God and believe and have faith that he's going to speak? No. If you are told God no longer heals or does miracles, which some have heard, will you believe for those things? Absolutely not. Why would I believe that God doesn't do them anymore? And if you're told the stories of the Bible are not true, why would I believe the rest of the messages in it? Because Jesus talked about them, about this thing as historical. Paul talked about this, these events as historical, so now they're both liars. We've got a conundrum. Or what we do is we interpret the Bible to mean what we want it to mean. I was thinking about this, and, and I heard somebody say this, but I've been thinking about it a lot. He says, you know, if you read a fallible book, meaning written by some man that's in a fallen man, you know, and you read something, and maybe it's political, maybe it's about history, maybe it's self-help book, and they say in there something you disagree with, a date, a perspective, and you're like, yeah, I, I, I can see what you're trying to say. I don't agree. No big deal. You're a fallen man. No big deal. Here's the problem. When we read God's word, <laughs> we hold God's word to be really high in, sta- in, our, in our standard, and we believe it's infallible and er- inerrant. Let me, let me explain those two words. Infallible means incapable of making a mistake. Inerrant means absence of any error. So infallibility is it's trustworthy. And then errancy is there's no mistake, no errors in this, which we believe. So if you read something and it goes against what you believe, what you've been taught, your lifestyle, and you read it, and it goes against the common thoughts of science, science, geology, biology, whatever, you can't say God's wrong, he's a liar. You can't look at it and say, well, I don't believe that. So you're stuck. And so what do we do? Instead of seeing it clearly for what it is, we go, well, maybe God didn't really mean what, he, what I think he means here. Maybe, we can, maybe, it, maybe it needs to be interpreted a little bit different. It's interesting when you ask most Atheists and secular, they've, they've done these studies and stuff. What do you believe the Bible teaches 
about creation. You know, what do they say? Well, God created the earth in six literal days. There was, there was sin, global flood, and the Tower of Babel is where we get all the languages. They read it. They go, say, I don't believe any of it. I think it's hogwash, but I, 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 believe, I don't believe any of it. But that's what it says. But Christians, when they read this, they don't want to look ridiculous or anti-science. They can't seem to harmonize the two. I can't say what I can't say this is wrong. So maybe it's maybe God didn't really mean what, he, what I think He means. Maybe I need to interpret it differently. Maybe this was just poetry. Maybe this was just an allegory. Maybe the twenty-four hours of the day is not twenty-four literal hours. Maybe it's a huge span of time. Maybe there's a gap between Genesis one one and one two. There has to be something. We we look at it. What we're missing something because science has said this. I know God's word's true. So what do I have to do? I've got to find a way to harmonize the two. You guys with me? Are you just thinking? Everybody's quiet. I always never know. Is that just thinking or are you falling asleep? <laughs> See, the keepers of the Old Testament, which was the Jewish rabbis, none of them wrote about uh, Genesis not being a literal account or that it was poetry. They all believed it. Now, there were some that maybe didn't believe the account, but they all recognized that Genesis 1, 1, that, that part, first few three chapters, was Prose and narrative. Dr. Stephen Boyd of the Master's College conducted a statistical analysis of the Hebrew language in Genesis to determine if it could possibly be termed poetry and not prose. And here's what he concluded. Genesis 1 and 2 are indeed a narrative passage, not poetic, based on the relative frequencies of the preterite verb form and the two types of passages, there is a less than one chance in 10,000 chance that Genesis is 1 and 2 is poetry. It's narrative. Furthermore, the Hebrew word for day, yom, in Genesis is always presented and meant as a 24-hour period. There's another word in, 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 in chapter 2, but it's a different Hebrew form that talks about like in the day. And that could mean a long period of time. But any time that is paired with morning and evening, it is always looked at as a 24-hour period. Period. That they, that's it. Genesis 1, 1, 5. Let's read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was morning, moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Now, if you're just reading this and you were not thinking about anything else, what would you think this meant, what one day meant? One day, evening and morning, 24 hours. It's bound by that time. So it's pretty clear. And the problem is, if you, can, if you begin to start to try to reinterpret the Scriptures from what it's really meant, I'm afraid you get, you get into some problems when you start looking, well, this is just a metaphor, an allegory. Do you, you recognize that 
Um, all of every do- denomination that has openly accepted homosexuality has also uh, categorized Genesis as poetry. Why? Because Genesis is the foundation of almost every major doctrine in the Bible. If you take the literal meaning out, you're left with a lot of confusion because now you've got Jesus calling it literal and history, and you've got Paul, and you've got Peter, and you've got Hebrew writer, and they all view, view Genesis as real events and real people and historical. So let me show you some of the things that we see in Scripture, the doctrines that, that are lined out in Genesis. First of all, Genesis tells us who God is. He's our creator. He was never created. He's always existed. He's sovereign. God is good. Everything he creates is good. And Genesis tells us who man is. He tells us the doctrine of man. Man is a created being in God's image. That doesn't necessarily mean he's physically God's image, but there are aspects of our spirit and our emotional that that are like God. This is a really difficult concept, but we are special. We have value. We have intrinsic value. We're not like all the other animals. We are valuable God. The sanctity of human life is in Genesis. I just came across this video just a few days ago, and I want to just show you the rabbit trail that, or the, the path that this is taking us down in our young people. Let's watch. What's up, guys? This is Will Witt with PragerU. Today we're in Echo Park where we have a petition to stop the killing of eagles, stop the destruction of eagle eggs, but then we're asking them to sign a petition to stop the killing of babies. See how it goes. We have a petition to stop the killing of eagles, like eagle eggs. You know, people disturb them or they destroy them. These eagles haven't been born yet. Like, they have rights, you know, everything. Yeah. Like, we don't, we don't think that they should be harmed or there should be harsher penalties for those kind of things. Would you yes. guys agree? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. If you guys agree, we have a pen right here. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Don't kill eagles. Yeah, don't kill eagles, right? Eagles have rights, too. <laughs> so here's a pen. Eagles are people, too. Yeah, eagles are people, too. Best of luck, I hope. You saved the eagles. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we actually, let me just talk to you real quick. We have one other petition about stopping the killing of humans, too. We want to protect their rights, too, even though being, like, unborn. Wait, so I, know no, if you would I wanna... don't agree with that. You don't agree with that? No, I'm, like, I, I'm pro-abortion. Sorry. Oh, fair enough. Why, why do you... <laughs> Is this awkward now? Oh, no, like, I don't agree. You don't agree? I uh, fully support abortion. Why do you support not the killing of unborn eagles, but the killing of unborn children? Um, I think it's the mother's decision. A human woman should have more rights, probably, than a bald eagle. Yeah. Okay. Abortion. Thanks. A lot of things get overlooked when we're talking about people, because we have consciousness. Yeah, fair enough. Do eagles have consciousness? I don't know. I've never talked to an eagle. That's fair. I don't think eagles have a lot of opinions. I don't think so, either. That's okay. (laughs) All right, guys, we just finished up here, and we found that a lot of the people who we talked to at the beginning of our interview with them didn't really like us at the end of our interview with them, which is okay. Got some good educational stuff, and we appreciate you guys tuning in. Like the- That's the trail that we're headed down. I mean, you, you look, you're like, what? And it's because we've taken... Genesis, we've taken the intrinsic value of a human out of our society. And now it's like just human eagles are people too. 
Because we're, they're taught that we come from animals. It's pretty scary. Where did morality come from? It comes from God. There's a right and there's a wrong. You don't get to choose what's right and wrong. God gets to choose what's right or wrong. God sets the standard and they were accountable to it. The doctrine of sin and death. There is a penalty for our sin and death is that penalty. We also see the Messiah in Genesis. God had a plan from the start. Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This was right after they had sinned. God throws them out of the garden and he says, but here's what's going to happen. Your offspring is going to strike the head of the serpent, but he's going to strike your heel. Of course, that's what happened at the cross. Right at the beginning, there is the doctrine of, of the Messiah coming. The doctrine of marriage is in Genesis. This is not a man-made construct. God set this in the beginning, male and female. And that's what we follow. Why do we wear clothes? Think about dogs running around, no big deal. All their privates are there. Why is it okay for them? But people, it's not okay for us. You ever thought about that? Genesis. God was hiding their shame. It's all found in there. Everything is found in there. So if you make Genesis 1 through 3 into a metaphor, a lot of these doctrines don't really make sense because they are all about specific people. And Jesus made clear And Paul makes clear, which I'll show you in a second, it's all about those specific people as being historical. So the point here, I'm not trying to argue over a scientific method. I'm trying to establish God's word as superior authority over our lives and everything else as secondary. That's my goal here. Uh, Dr. Hugh Ross is an astronomer, and uh, he's, he's Christian, loves the Lord. He's, I, I first saw him on 700 Club or something like that, and was really interested in, in, in all his, his talks and stuff. He's an astronomer, and um, he believes in billions of years. He does not believe in a global flood, and he doesn't really believe that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. Um, so Eric Hovind, I've been listening to one of his podcasts. Eric Hovind had an interview with Dr. Ross, and he asked him this question. As a believer, he says, if the science community came out today and they said, we were wrong. The earth is young. That's not how things happen. We've totally missed it. Would you change your perspective if the science community changed there? He said, well, absolutely I would. And Eric Coven says, see, that's my problem. That's my problem. So there were two points in my journey where I had to I had to deal with something. I'm going to deal with these right here. I, had, had to, I couldn't get around these little two points in the Scripture. We'll, we'll talk, like I said, next, in the next couple of weeks, and we'll get a little bit of fun with some of the evidences and science and that kind of stuff that they found that point to a creation and that point to a global flood. But there were two points in Scripture where I said, I don't know how I harmonize the two beliefs And, if, and I don't know what to do because I'm going to have to either bend or do some gymnastics with God's word or I just have to completely believe what it says. And, and so here's, here's the two. 
Um, the first had to do with the sequence of the event, events that the Bible puts out versus the secular world puts out. The common understanding is that the world, the universe, is about 13.8 billion years old and the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. The universe was created first and then the earth. The Bible is clear that God created the earth first as his first prized possession and the universe was formed second. Let's read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's that's kind of setting this up. It's like, here's in the beginning, God created this. Now, now let me tell you how it happened. You understand that? So a lot of times people say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there's 4.5 billion years between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, that's called the gap theory. Um, but really what's happening in the Hebrew, people that are much smarter say, no, that's really what he's doing is he's setting up in the beginning. Here's what happened. And here's how it happened. The earth was with out form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So day one here, he creates the oceans, the land, the vegetation and light. Now some would ask, well, okay, what was that light? Well, we don't know what the light was, but you know, you don't have to have the sun in order to have light. Fire creates light. So what the Bible's actually saying when he said, when they talk about creating light, He's creating the element of light. He creates the element of water and the element of land. These are the things, the things that we need, fire, and land, and water. He's creating these things, right? So day one and two and three, I'm just highlighting this. He creates the oceans, the land, the vegetation. He creates light, trees, and plants. Evolution states that plants actually came after animals. Okay, so there's another one. Let's keep reading. Day four. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. and Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to the rule the night, sun and the moon and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, fourth day. Fourth day. So the Bible's clear. God didn't create the sun, the moon, the stars until day four. He created the earth first. The earth is actually older than the sun, moon, and the stars by about uh, four days. <laughs> but the, the common thought is that, that the stars and the sun, the moon are actually older than the earth, sometimes some of them three times older than the earth. I had to struggle with that. I'm like, well, but if, I know that's what it says, but here's what God's word says, how it, how, it was, how it was done. The second issue that I had to struggle with was the idea, it was really a theological issue. The Bible is clear that God created the heavens and the earth and it was perfect. Without sin, without death. Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the world. Let's, let's read Romans 5. When Adam's sin, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You get that? When Adam sinned, sin in the world, Adam's sin brought what? Everybody say it. Death. 
Okay, some people say, well, what about plants and that kind of thing? Well, plants, the Bible's clear that life is in the blood. So I think he looks at animals and humans as different than plants because the life is in the blood. Let's keep reading. And the result of the, God's gracious gift is very different from the results of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man. Now, does this sound like a real historical person? The sin of this one man. Adam caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. It will live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to solve a problem that Adam messed up. If Adam is a mythological figure, then we've got a real conundrum on our hands, theologically speaking. Because Paul is clear. Adam's sin brought death into the world. Jesus Christ came to fix the problem. And an animal wouldn't work. A real historical man created the problem of sin, death, and separation. An animal could not fix this. They they had animals that would cover cover their sin. It was a sign, but it could not fix the problem. It had to be a kinsman redeemer. It had to be someone who was just like us to come into this world and take the place and take sin upon his shoulders to take the weight and the penalty for Adam's sin in the whole world. It required a sinless man. And here was the problem. (laughs) There is no such thing as a sinless man. Until Jesus came. And God, I don't know how all this worked. I don't know what's passed down, the sin nature. I don't know any of that stuff. That's been discovered from, or discussed for millennia. But somehow, when God overshadowed Mary and, and conceived a child in her, he birthed a man that had no sin nature and that was without sin. And it was through Jesus Christ, his, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross that made a way for what Adam did 6,000 years ago to be erased for us to be right with God again. Let's praise God for that. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, after the end will come, we're talking about the end times, when Jesus re- will return the kingdom of God over to the God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Death is an enemy of God. He hates death. It was never a part of his plan. Man, aren't you so thankful for those that who have had loved ones pass away that that's not the end? And Jesus is saying, one day I'm going to get rid of all this death thing. It's never going to exist anymore. That's an enemy, and I want to get rid of it because I'm going to live together forever, and no one will ever die. Praise God for that amazing promise. Death is an enemy. So if we subscribe to an evolutionary mindset, or even billions of years, or in day-age theory, we have to also subscribe to the fact that there was billions of years of death happening before God said death happened. 
We would have to say that animals were killing animals, that it was a destruction when God said, I made the world and it was very good. I couldn't get past it. I, just, I, I couldn't get past it. In order to believe this other thought, I would have to say that death, sin and death, were happening long before God said sin and death happened when he said, I created the world perfect and sin and death destroyed it. And we know from the genealogies that Adam lived some around 6,000 years ago. You know, it was 300 years ago, most everybody, not everybody, but the majority, the, the, the majority thinking was that the earth was about 6,000 years old in the, according to biblical timeline. The billions of years, it started out as 170 million, then went to 100 million, then 500 million, then a billion, now four. Okay, they just keep adding on it. But the whole idea... That this was created it has nothing to do with the Bible. It was all created in order to make room for the evolutionary process to be plausible. It all came about that. It, they had to have time in order to create their whole theory of evolution. They had to have as much time as possible for those things to happen. Michael Roos is a philosopher and a big proponent of evolution states, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. I'm an ardent evolution and an ex-Christian, he says, but I must admit that in this one complaint, in Mr. Gish, who's a creation scientist, is one of many to make this point. The literalists are absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it's true of evolution still today. It is a substitution for God. It's a substitution for Christianity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This is humanism being thrust on our children every day in the public schools. It's a religion. I thought they kicked religion out of the schools. No, they kicked Christianity out of the schools, but the religion's still there. Humanism. We did it ourselves. There are many reasons that people are leaving the faith. It happens. People get hurt. They sense hypocrites in the church. Whatever, they, whatever reason they leave. But let me just tell you, I believe this one area is probably the biggest or one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue, because it is tearing down the fiber in the root and the foundation of who we are. Romans 1 tells us that we're all going to be given account because creation has revealed to us that God is there. So now what the secular progressives and humanistic people are coming on, and saying, there is no God. And let me show you, our God is science. You don't need that God of the Bible anymore. It's been replaced with science. We're teaching in our public schools that we have no intrinsic value. We have just evolved. And that the morality that God established is antiquated, old-fashioned, or that there's no God, at least not one who's involved in our everyday lives. 
It's the enemy's scheme to pull a generation from God in the Bible. And I just want to finish with this scripture because I, every time I read this scripture in Peter, I just am like, wow, wow. It says that you should remember, Peter 3, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. This was predicted by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Listen to what they're going to say. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, listen to this, deliberately, ignorantly, claim to be stupid, overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. That's the first thing. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the second thing. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is astounding. It says, do not forget what the prophets prophesied. In the last days, we're in the last days. In the last days, there's going to be three things that are going to happen. People will deliberately overlook that God created the heavens and the earth. Check. They will deliberately forget and suppress the truth that God destroyed the world with a global flood. Check. And they deliberately overlook and suppress the truth that one day God will judge the world and every human heart for how they lived, check three. This is happening today, don't you agree? This is the most sought after, trying to thing to dispel and go after. If we can go after Genesis, if we can go after that God created you, that God has formed you and put his image, if we can get all that out of you, we can win over a generation and it's working. It's working so my goal here I keep saying I'm not trying to get you to bring believe some theory I'm trying to get you to go after the word of God I want this thing, the word of God to become so alive it's just like man every word I just hang on every word God says the reason I talk about a young earth is because I believe the scriptures teaches that at least the earth we know now maybe there was something beforehand I have no clue I'm not going to get into that. But the earth we know now is clear in Scripture. We have to be careful. We're not trying to add something to Scripture. We're in a spiritual battle and the world is trying to discredit God's word just like Satan did in the very beginning. Did God really say? Did God really say? you were created that I'm the ultimate being and that you were created and I created you with my image and you're special did God really say that no no he didn't say that you were just like one of the animals and we're just an evolved life form did God really say that there's a plan for your life and that there is we should be held accountable what he said no 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 your truth is my truth your truth is your truth my truth is my truth there is no absolute moral standard any longer that's been done away 
we have to realize that the majority of these theories are against God's word and they are trying to seek to bypass it. They're trying to bypass the need for God's word, for being accountable for God's word and discrediting the word of God in our culture. So we have to be able to stand up and speak the truth and we have to know the truth. So that's a part of my heart here, you know, is to, is just to come back. Like I said, next week we'll get into some fun stuff. But today I really just wanted us to just go back to God's word and just say, here's what it says. What do we believe? Can we stand up as we finish? Let's just bow our heads here. A lot of teaching today, not really a come cry at the altar thing, but it's just a recognition. Holy Spirit, we just recognize that your word is the foundation for our lives. And becoming a disciple of Christ means one thing. We stand on the authority of God's word in our lives that's our filter that everything runs through what's God's word say what did God say and so father we we come before you and say Lord we just affirm once again that we believe in the word of God and the word of God is our foundation our hope it's what we stand on it's what we live our lives by we won't be swayed teach us Holy Spirit teach us by your spirit I'm just reminded of the scripture that says you don't need anybody to teach you for you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you this week as you read the the words on the page, as you get back into the word of God. Some of you need to stir that up again and you're like, man, I haven't read in two weeks. Well, it's time to start reading again. Let the word of God transform your life as you read it, as you take it in, as you deposit the seed of God's word in your life. Let it do its work and produce a harvest in you we thank you jesus amen love you guys